what is worthy of your trust? Is there anybody or anything in this world that is worthy of your trust? And is there anybody in your life that you would be willing to take their word and trust what they say to you? And then move forward, not knowing all the intricate details of what's going on, but go ahead and move forward based on the fact that you trust somebody at their word. And sometimes we have to recognize in this broken and fallen world that when we trust other people or we trust circumstances or something like that, that often things and people fail us. Sometimes you trust a chair, you sit on it, and it breaks. It failed you. Or sometimes we trust what a friend would tell us, and they don't hold up what they said that they would do. And they fail us. And often the thing that we trust the most in this world is ourselves. Our own intuition. Our own experiences. Our own opinions. And Proverbs teaches us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So can we put our trust in anyone? Can we put our trust in anything? When we can't even really totally trust ourselves. I pray this morning that as we hear and consider God's word from Psalm 20, that God would overpower my self-deception. Of too often putting my trust in myself and putting my trust in my methods and putting my trust in people. And that he would help each of us to see how unchangeably reliable he is and he alone is to his people. God. God alone is the ground of the confidence of his people. That's what we're considering this morning from Psalm 20. God is the ground of the trust and the hope and the confidence of his people. Look at Psalm 20 quietly as I as I read out loud. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up banners, uh, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the big idea or the main idea of this text. God's people trust in God's promises to their king. God's people trust in God's promises to their king. And here's the outline of five points. Number one, God's people prayed for their king. God's people prayed for their king. Number two, God's people prayed with trust in God's name. 
They prayed with trust in God's name. Number three, they prayed with trust in God's promise. They prayed with trust in God's promise. And number four, Jesus is God's answer to their prayers. King Jesus is the answer to their prayers. And then last, number five, friends, put your trust in King Jesus. Put your trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. The first point, God's people prayed for their king. Look at uh, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Well, when I was in high school, there was a type of music that was popular. It was called grunge music or alternative music. Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, Green Day. I'm not endorsing that you go and necessarily listen to all these folks. But those were the popular albums that were coming out in the days of my high school years. And one of the things that a lot of those songs had in common was this, especially with Pearl Jam. You could hardly understand anything that they were actually saying. I mean, well, unless you had the liner notes, you know. But I, I can remember even at times getting in debates with friends about what they were actually saying in the song because, you know, we didn't always have the liner notes. Those were back in the days we would record something on a tape off the radio, you know. All right, so, but they didn't, they didn't enunciate very well. They didn't articulate their words very clearly. And I look back at it now and I laugh about it, but it makes a, di- a big difference when you don't understand what people are saying as they're saying something in a song, either for the better or for the worse. And if you don't know what the song is about, you're probably missing the whole point. Well, we need to be careful as we approach these songs in, in the Psalter, in the, in the Bible. The, the Psalms are songs that are meant for the people of God to be singing. And we need to know what they're talking about in order to properly understand really what's going on in the text, even as we sing. And we can have an instinct of immediately, as we read through the Psalms, we have a temptation of immediately just applying things one for one. That line there, my life. That line there, my life. You know, in the particular psalm that you're reading, you know, some of the psalms are okay to do that. They're designed for you to, to read it and be encouraged as a believer in God uh, through His anointed Son, Jesus Christ. And there is a kind of a one-to-one parallel at times in some of the psalms. But many of the psalms, that's actually not exactly the case. You know, a number of the psalms that we've actually been considering are not just a one-to-one parallel to my personal life. And that's how Psalm 20 works as well. It's not a one-to-one parallel to you or to me individually. So David, he's the king of Israel. He's, the, he's writing that the choir master should lead the choir, the, the congregation, in the singing of this prayer to God. But ask the question as you look at those first four verses, verses who are they praying for? Who is the choir master leading the choir and the congregation of God's people to be praying for. You see that, that you there again and again in the text. But that you there, that's not you. And that's not me. We are not the yous in the text. 
And the yous are singular, and it's clear that the psalmist, he's not singing about you and me, but someone else. There's 11 yous, and that, those, those yous, as they come again, you, 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 praying for this, this you person, it's like this big grammatical arrow or a big grammatical anvil that's ready to drop, and it happens in verse 6. Who's the you? That's the destination there at the end of verse 6, the anointed. And anointed in Hebrew is that word Messiah. Many of us have heard that before. If you're not, that Messiah, that word means anointed one or anointed king, God's chosen king. And the kings of Israel, they were anointed with oil. That was part of their installment as a leader of the nation of Israel. And in Greek, that word Messiah, that Hebrew word Messiah, was translated as Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but as you're reading through the New Testament, you see Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. That's not his surname that he inherited from Joseph and, and, and Mary. That's, that's a title. That's, that's a role. That's a, a king. You see, you could almost say Jesus anointed one, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus King. And God's chosen king was set apart by anointing with oil. And this song is leading the people of God in prayer for their anointed king, their Messiah, their, their Christ. And David, he was even functioning as in, in that kind of type, in that role in the nation of Israel as a king. We thought about that from Psalm chapter 2, of that title of son. Even Israel itself was called a son in the Old Testament. And so the king as a son uh, was also a representation of the people. But David himself was pointing to a son that was greater than himself, which would be the son that comes through his lineage. We'll keep thinking about that. But here in verse 9, it shows this too. The anointed there is Yahweh, that, that all caps lock uh, Lord is always the, the divine name of the covenant God, Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, I am that I am. Yahweh, save the king, there in verse 9. So that you there that we see again and again in this text is pointing at the anointed one. It's pointing at the Messiah. And many people have called this particular psalm a royal song about a king. But the, the mention of salvation and the banners raised in this text, we also get an image of something else. We get an image of, a, of, of an army. In verses 7 through 8, look at that there. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This is, this is a hearkening call to the people of God. Men, gird up your loins. We are going into battle. Prepare to follow your king into war. God, save the king. And as the king goes, so goes the people. This song may have been used. We don't know exactly its use in Israel, but it may have been used to lead the military in battle, a, kind of a, as a, a ritual of a preparation for going into battle. It may have been part of that ritual that they would have done before war. And you, you see that word there after verse 3, Selah. That, that usually means either a quiet or sometimes it's a, a, a musical notation there. But that, in, that, may, that Selah may mean a pause in their preparation for war. And, and it might indicate a pause for the ritual preparations of going into battle to there, in verse 3, to be making the burnt offering or the burnt sacrifice and to be preparing an offering. So even as the nation and the king leading the army into battle is preparing to do this and go out and fight for the sake of the people, there are burnt offerings that must be done prior to going off into war 
There is confession of sin that must be done before they go off to war. Repenting of sin, turning from their sin. There's a remembering even before they go to fight for the nation of of God in Israel of remembering the seriousness of their sin as they slit the throat of the sacrifice and blood is spilt to make atonement for sin. And as the king prepares to lead his people off into battle. So we pause and we wonder. Offering burnt sacrifice. And and look at what they prayed for for the king. That Yahweh, that name of of the one true and living covenant God again, Yahweh would answer in the day of trouble in verse 1. That that God's name would protect them in verse 1. That uh, the sanctuary, that God, from the sanctuary, God would give help and support from Zion. And Zion, if you don't know what that is, it's the hill upon which Jerusalem was built. And the sanctuary was uh, the place that the presence of God was. And sometimes... There's a crossover between uh, the heavenly Zion and the earthly Zion. So even as God dwelled in the presence in the middle of of His people on Mount Zion, it's a, a reflection of really God is ruling from His heavenly throne, Zion. And they prayed that God would remember the king's offerings and show favor with His burnt offerings in verse 3. In verse 4, look at that huge ask there. May He, Yahweh... Grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Friends, that's not you. They're praying for the king. This is a prayer of a people who trust in God's promises to their king. How else could the congregation and the army pray these things with so much boldness and so much confidence? Either they are delusional Or they know something about God that is worthy of all trust, worthy of all awe, worthy of all honor, and worthy of all praise. Well, these people in this text that are praying this song, it's God's people have sung this song throughout the ages. They aren't delusional. They know something that the nations lacked. They know the name of God. That's the next point. They prayed with trust in God's name. So if you know somebody's name and you tell somebody to trust you because they, you, they, they know your name or you tell somebody to trust somebody else because they, you know that person's name, sometimes they might think you're delusional. Uh, I can't really trust any mechanics. Yeah, all those contractors are, are bad. Or <laughs> all, all attorneys or lawyers are this, that, or the other. You know, sometimes we, we can stereotype people based off of a profession. Or we we see people that are so untrustworthy so often that we just start to distrust anybody that's in that type of a role in our life. But if if I told you that I trusted someone because I know their commitment and I know how they have been constantly reliable over the course of time, if I told you the quality of the life of the person who had that name, then you'd think that I wasn't being delusional. You might even say that I was being wise. Wise. Like the recommendation of a reliable mechanic or a contractor, God is much more worthy of our trust because of His name than any name of any man. And this is one of the reasons that God's people trust in His promises to their king. They know His name. Look at verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God, the God of Jacob, protect you. In verse 5. 
God's people set up banners in the name of their God. And in verse 7, God's people trust in the name of the Lord more than they trust in military weapons of their day. And this, this God's name, again, His name is Yahweh. The Lord, in all capital letters, I am who I am. And David, he's not thinking about an amorphous God that he's imagining is real. No, the name is specifically the God of Jacob. And think of Jacob, the fountainhead of the nation of Israel, the, the one whose sons were the twelve tribes of Israel. The fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham was beginning to take shape through the twelve tribes of Israel, which were the sons of Jacob. And think of, remember, when he's going back to meet his brother Esau, who he stole his inheritance, that God protected him in that. God established Jacob in the midst of, even in the midst of his own sin, even in the midst of his own distrust of God's covenant promise to Abraham and then Isaac and then then to himself. And remember what God called him, Israel. This is one who wrestles with God. There's a new identity that this man has as the covenant promise of God passes to that generation. This here in this text is the God of Jacob. Not just any made up uh, God that doesn't exist in the world, but a specific God who has done specific things in the course of history. There is only one true and living God, and it's the covenant-making and keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's to this God that, they, that the, the people of God are praying for God to establish His promise to His King in this text in Psalm 20. Again, this is the God of the Hebrews who rescued His people from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. They saw great mighty wonders and works of God as He saved His people from their sins so that they might go out and worship Him in the way that He had revealed in His Word. Yahweh is the name of the God that He has revealed Himself to His covenant people, particularly in Moses. You think of the burning bush in Exodus 3. And there He told Moses, I am who I am. And that's specifically, that's the, that's the name Yahweh. It means, I am who I am. And listen to the description of the Lord as He renewed His covenant with Israel at Sinai in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord... And each time the Lord occurs in this text, it's that name again, Yahweh. I am that I am, or I am who I am. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The one true and living God condescended to human beings, to reveal himself to sinful, weak, undeserving people. The one true and living God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit commits himself to his people. He reveals his name and to them and he puts his name upon them even as he 
uh, revealed to Moses that Aaron ought to put the name of the Lord God upon his people in Numbers chapter 6. This is the first ground of such a confident prayer of God's people to, that God would fulfill his promises to their king. The knowledge of the name of God. God's name is the focal point of the trust of his people as they prepared for battle and as they prayed for their king. But that leads to the next point, this. God's people prayed with trust in God's promise. Verse 6 exposes another ground of their confidence in this prayer. Verse 6, look at that there. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his, God's holy heaven, with the saving of his right hand. And God's, he, he made a promise to David. God's people are aware of the promise that God made to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 says this, and you've probably heard me read this a lot, but that's good. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's God's promise to David. And the well-being of all Israel is bound up and wrapped up with that promise that God made to David. And God's promise was to David, but it had powerful implications for all of God's people that extended even beyond God, uh, David's earthly life. A king would come through David's lineage, but it would be a king who rules over his people for their good and for the eternal, their eternal good, really, and for the eternal glory of God. So look at the final prayer in verse 9 again. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is a prayer that God would fulfill his promise to David. Save the king. Even as we go off into battle, because we are bound up with our king. We are united with our king. If the king falls, the nation falls. But they know that God is faithful to his promise, and he will establish a lineage through David that would give us more than merely a human king for a brief period of time on this sphere of the earth. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it, it's instructive to us that the Jews sang this song both before and after David's death. And this song carries implications that point beyond the life of David. The psalm is connected to Psalm 21, and we'll consider that again next week. But Psalm 21 is the answer in many ways to Psalm 20. And look at the answer to their prayer that, that God would save the king. Look at verse uh, 4 through 7 of Psalm 21. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. He and the people of God are praying for huge things in these texts. In Psalm 20, again in verse 4. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. In the second part of verse 5 of Psalm 20. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Friends, again, this psalm is looking beyond David. 
to the fulfillment of God's promise to David of a king who would come on his throne who would rule and reign forever. The people knew that God was committed to keeping his promise and this is the hope of God's people in this text. God's promise of a king to David wasn't just a promise to David but to all of God's people. And as time carries forward, it's a promise of a king that would ultimately reign more than just Israel, but a people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Even in Revelation that we read earlier, the great multitude that one day will be gathered at the great marriage of the Lamb to His bride, the church. It would be through David's lineage that God would establish His people. And it was through God's promise of a king upon David's throne that God will fulfill his promise. And God fulfilled his promise to David. In Israel, he he fulfilled his promise to Israel by sending a king through David's lineage who wouldn't only go out to fight against the enemies of Israel but would fight our eternal enemy, Satan, and win. Now, the offspring of Eve, who would crush the head of Satan, was coming through the lineage now. Here we see in the Old Testament of this text even, the lineage of David. And it's in this lineage, this offspring, this seed of Eve that becomes the seed of Abraham, that becomes the seed of David, the offspring. It's in him that he would go out to conquer the sin and the death. And God would accomplish salvation for a people. He would redeem and save not only Israel, but all of those who turn from their sin and trust in this coming king, uh, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is a prayer for David and the king of Israel, but ultimately it's fulfilled in the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. At least to the next point, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prayer. This prayer goes beyond again David, and it's not limited to one Time and one space, it's prophetic. It's looking forward, it's foretelling, it's foretelling. It's pointing forward to the king who would sit on David's throne. The king who is greater than David because he was before David. And yet he is a descendant of David. Again, the answer to this prayer in the next psalm, it speaks beyond David to length of days. Look at twenty-one, chapter 21, verse 4 again. Length of days forever and ever. Verse 6 of chapter 21, blessed forever. Verse 7 of chapter 21, through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. David and all the kings from his lineage died. Was God unfaithful to fulfill his promise in that? No, they're thinking of something that's beyond themselves. And the kings from his family, they died, and they even, many of them, fell into sin. In Psalms 20 through 21, they're prophetic. They're pointing forward to the offspring of David that would sit upon David's throne. And ultimately, these psalms aren't about David or his descendants with the exception of one. The one offspring of David who, would, who conquered death. The one offspring of David who has eternal life. The one offspring of David who is the king of kings. The one offspring of David in whom God has given eternal blessings as an eternal king. This psalm is extending forward beyond the very life of David to his greater son, Jesus Christ. Who is God's anointed king? 
The Bible teaches that the promised king who would sit upon David's throne forever is Jesus. He's the one that Psalm 20 is ultimately talking about. And as the Jews sang this song, they were praying that God would save King Jesus. That he wouldn't fail in his military mission as he sets out to fight for his people. That he would conquer. He would conquer not only their their physical enemies in this world, but sin and death. That he would be victorious by rising again from the dead. And to satisfy the eternal wrath of God that his people deserve. It's a prayer that he would be successful and that he would win the victory. Look at the psalm again and consider Christ as we look through this psalm. May the Lord answer Jesus Christ in the day of trouble. May the name of God, or the God of Jacob, protect you, O Lord Jesus. As they're looking forward to the king that would sit on the Davidic throne. May the Lord send help, send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion, Lord Jesus. May God remember all your offerings in regard with favor, your burnt sacrifices. And friends, pause for a minute to think of the sacrifices of Christ, the offering of himself for his people. Again, Jesus, he lived the perfect life that none of us have lived. And he didn't merely bring offerings and a burnt sacrifice of bulls and goats to make atonement for the sin of his people, but he died in the place of his people. Christ's sacrifice was himself. He was sprinkled with his own blood as he was flogged, spat upon, mocked, abused, and then nailed to a cross to suffer and to die as he was lifted up before a people. And as Christ died, he bore the curse that his people deserve for their sin, for their falling short of the glory of God. Even as Israel sang this song throughout the years before Christ came, they were praying that God would remember this offering. The one time for all time offering that would be shed and and that would be killed. That all the offerings of the Old Testament pointed to and are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God would regard with favor that sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his people. And that it would be wholly acceptable unto God. That he would take the eternal wrath of God. that, That he would bear hell for his people as a sinless substitute for his people, so that God would look upon those who turn from their sin and trust in him with favor. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. For the sin upon sin of your life from evil stacked upon evil that you have done in your life and in your heart, friend, for that you deserve God's wrath. And without Jesus Christ, this is what we face eternally. But God poured out His wrath and the punishment that His people deserve upon uh, upon His Son. The King that the psalm is ultimately praying for was to come and to die in the place of sinners like us, like you and like me. So friend, again, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ, that you're thinking somehow if you do some good works that God's going to look at that and forgive you for your sin. Friend, you're deceived. You must turn from your sin and from your deception of thinking that you could earn a way to be saved with God. You must trust in Jesus Christ alone 
for salvation. And we have all rebelled against God. Our only hope is to put our trust in the king that David and Israel is praying for in this text. So friend, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This isn't a one-time thing. Our whole life, God is giving us the gift of repentance. Turn afresh from your sin. And confess your sin to God. Turn again to Him and trust afresh in the death and resurrection of His Son, King Jesus. And confess with your mouth that He is Lord. The very God in this text who took on human flesh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now friends, confess Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. If you're confused about how you, friend, this morning can find forgiveness for your sin, my friend, look no further than Christ. There's nothing greater than you could do that you could do today is to stay after and just continue to talk about how you can find forgiveness for your sin in Jesus Christ. And kids, if you're here with your parents too, talk with them after later today about how you can find forgiveness for your sin in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, again, he is the perfect fulfillment of this prayer. Verse 4. Look there, may God grant Christ his heart's desire and fulfill all the kings, all, all King Jesus' plans. And friends, oh, how powerfully God has fulfilled the plans and the petitions of Jesus Christ perfectly. He has given the heart's desire of Jesus to him. So you can ask the question, what is Jesus' heart's desire? That God would give him his heart's desire. Well, there's at least 14 in, in John chapter 17. So I'm just going to go through a list here. In John chapter 17, there's 14 different things that Christ desires for his people. And we could go well beyond what's in John 17. But just listen. The heart's desire of Christ, that God would glorify Jesus so that Jesus would glorify God the Father. Number two, it... It's Christ's desire to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Him. So eternal life. Number three, that a people would know that eternal life is the knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ who He has sent. Friends, there is no other way to be saved. No other religious system. No other uh, system of the works of man that can save us. The only way that we can have eternal life and forgiveness for our sins is through Jesus Christ. Number four, that his people would believe the Father sent him. Number five, that his people would have God's word. It's the desire of Christ that you and I would have God's word. Number six, the desire of Jesus is to pray for his people. Is that an encouragement to you that Jesus desires, the desire of his heart is to pray for his people? Number seven, that Jesus would be glorified in his people, in us. Number eight, that the Father would keep us as his people in his name, as one, in unity. Number nine, that Christ would keep, guard, and not lose one of his people to fulfill what the Bible says. Number ten, that we would have his joy. Eleven, that the Father would keep us as his people from the evil one. Number 12, that the Father would grow us as His people in holiness through the Bible. And Jesus' heart desire is 
that his people would be one. This is number 13, that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one so that the world might believe that the Father sent Jesus Christ. And I love this desire of Christ. Listen to John chapter 17, verse 24 through 26. This is number 14. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made you known to them. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved have loved me may be in them and I in them. And friends, that is just 14 of the petitions of Christ, of 14 of the desires of the heart of King Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic kingship and lineage that would lead to the King of kings and Lord of lords in Christ. Now friends, may God grant the petitions of King Jesus. Amen. Plans to save a people from their sins, to save a people from eternal conscious torment in hell that we deserve for our sins. The plans of dying in the place of His people. The plans of rising again from the dead. The plans of ascending at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The plans of ever interceding on behalf of His people. The plans of building His church through the proclamation of the gospel. The plans of keeping and being with His people to the end of the age. The plans of saving the lost. The plans of coming again to judge the living and the dead. The plans of raising His people from the dead and final resurrection victory. The plans to bring His people to be with Him forever by virtue of His perfect sacrifice. The plans of establishing an eternal kingdom and ruling it through His people. His plans of glorifying Himself in the full and final consummation of the salvation that He has promised for His people. And in verse 5, even as Israel prayed that they would shout for joy over the king's salvation, and in the name of God set up their banners, so in Christ, His people rejoice in salvation, in the salvation that He has wrought, that He has accomplished, that He has purchased for His people. And even as Christ is interceding and praying to the Father for His people, now so we pray with God's people, may Yahweh fulfill all of your desires and your petitions, O Christ. Amen. And that leads to the fifth point, friends. Put your trust in Christ. If there's any place in this text that we could jump straight to ourselves, it'd be from verse 5 and verses 7 through 8. Look at those verses again. May we shout for joy over the salvation and in the name of our God set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. My friends, God powerfully provided for Israel even when they were unfaithful. He still fulfilled His promise to David and all of them by bringing His Son through David's lineage. And even as Israel prayed this for David... And for their king, and ultimately Christ, so we see how this rock-solid promise of God stands. 
God fulfilled this prayer by bringing Christ. So even as his people would be tempted to trust in chariots and horses in the face of their enemies as they eagerly awaited the coming of the king of the Jews, so now we stand in a different advent. A different advent. Even as they were looking forward to the coming of Christ, Jesus has come. Jesus has lived the perfect life. He has died the death that we deserve, bearing our sin and our shame, God's wrath for his people. He has risen from the dead, and yet here we are now. We are waiting for the final return of Christ. We are awaiting the final advent, the coming of Christ. So even at Christmas time, when we sing that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, O come, God with us, we sing that afresh as we pray with the church throughout all the ages, Come, Lord Jesus. So we find ourselves in a similar position to Israel, even here. So we can be tempted to trust in other things. As we look back, we see God's faithfulness to His promises to Israel in these prayers. But also we await the final fulfillment of His promise that Jesus is coming again. So the posture of waiting that Israel had as they were awaiting the coming of the Son of God, Son of David, Jesus Christ, that's something that we share with them. We are waiting. That's the posture of of the church. As we sojourn through this world, as the apostles described us as exiles in this world, awaiting the coming again of the Son of David, Son of God, Jesus Christ. So friends, as we leave this place today, ask yourself, friend, what are you tempted to trust in, in this world? We don't live in a theocracy, the nation state of Israel, fighting against physical enemies with, with physical military warfare. But we continue to fight as we wait still more for the fulfillment of the promises of God to come to pass. And so what's the the military or the militant posture that we, as we await the coming of Christ, ought to have? Even as we are fighting even a, a spiritual war against principalities and powers. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Pray for each other. There's some direct application there. Pray through the member directory, brothers and sisters. Pray for each other. Making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Friends, we do not put our trust in the methods and the ingenuity and creativity that we can conjure up from our personality or from our earthly material resources. We don't put our trust in programs. We don't put our trust in physical weapons. Beware of turning away from 
God, by trusting in anything other than God. That's, that's the point of verse 7 in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of, our Lord, uh, of the Lord our God. And friends, what, what is David referring to? What are, what are the people of God praying there? What are they referring to? Well, remember again, as Israel is coming out by the powerful hand of God from slavery in Egypt, God commanded this to Israel. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And then he says this, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Why? Why? Why not chariots? Why not horses? The armies of Israel did not have the modern weapons of, of warfare. You know, for the same reason that they weren't to acquire many wives. For the same reason that they weren't to acquire excessive gold and silver so that their hearts would not turn away from God. And friends, we have seen the promises that Israel was looking forward to in this text in Christ. But friends, again, we are also in a period of waiting for Him to come again and to finally fulfill all of His promises. And while we wait, we are caught up in a spiritual fight against principalities and powers. And we, friends, in our flesh, are going to look for any way that we can find comfort in this world. We're going to look for those methods, those horses and those chariots. We're going to look for the devices of this world where we can set our trust in our savings account, in our bank account, whether it's in our job or our reputation, our family or whatever, our morality, our ethics. And in these last days of waiting, friends, what are you putting your trust in as you fight the good fight of faith in, in trusting and proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you putting your trust in human appearances and reputation? Are you putting trust in your health and strength? And friend, it will go. Are you putting your trust in money? Are you putting your trust in, in our church? You're putting trust in any other human being. Are you putting trust in friendships, in family? Are you putting trust in education? Are you putting trust in stuff, houses, cars? I mean, we could just keep going on and on. Our hearts are idol factories. We create multitudes of things that we would trust in rather than God. So are you, friend, again, as we leave this place, are you putting your trust in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ and relying upon His word. Friends, God means to show His strength by accomplishing for His people what they could never do on their own. Don't try to predict God's faithfulness by appearances. And again, are, are you weak? Are you a, de a dependent person, needy, who needs help? Friends, that is the occasion where God shows his strength. Israel was coming up against the nations with horses and chariots of which they did not have at the direct command of God for them to not have it. So again, it's a rallying call to the, to the people of God. 
following their king off into battle. Raise your swords high, because they will be higher than you. It's like God calling a people to a remote tribe in the Amazon that has nothing but spears to come up against a, a world power with nuclear arsenal. If that was the case, would you trust in the Lord your God over your weapons? I pray that that would be the case. According to worldly wisdom, they didn't stand a chance. It's like, again, like being weak in in the midst of the presence of a world superpower. But that's the point. God has set it up so that he He would display His strength through the weakness of His people, through the neediness of His people, that they would rely upon Him and not the things of this world. So friends, again, we cannot hope in ourselves. We can't hope in our ingenuity. We cannot hope in our plans. We cannot hope in our organization or even our creativity. We cannot hope in anything but Christ, the King. It's by God and God alone that any of us live. And He is our only hope in the face of a broken, uh, fallen world. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So I'll close by answering the question that I started with. God, friends, friends, God is worthy of your trust. Turn from relying on anything other than Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are mighty, that we are weak. We thank You that we are often quick to be self-deceived, and yet you show wisdom in your word. That you have given us your word. You have not left us to our own confused selves, but you have spoken clearly to us in the glorious face of your son, Jesus Christ, King Jesus. Now, Father, if there's nothing else that we learn this morning as we walk away from this place, help us to learn of your magnificence of your sovereign dominion and rule that you have accomplished and enacted through your son, Jesus Christ, that you are sure to fulfill your promises, that you are sure and reliable to do what you say that you would do, that you have sent your son, that he will come again. Oh God, we pray that you would steal us up with the hope that he has not forgotten us, even this week as we face trials, even this week as we see our weakness even this week as we see the ways that we so often fail in the things that we seek to do, God, we pray that you would help us to see that you do not fail, that you are unstoppable in fulfilling your promises, that you are unfailing in your loving kindness, your covenant love. God, we give you praise that we have a rock in you, a refuge in times of storm to trust upon. And Father, we give you praise that our hope is firmly planted in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.